This is a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 32, and chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It's found on page 978 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Pastor Tim Geiger. I am on staff here at Liberty. Uh, you often don't see me because uh, a lot of the work I do is behind the scenes, uh, and my wife and I uh, usually worship at uh, another church closer to where we live in Montgomery County. But it is good to be here with you today and to bring you God's Word. For the last eight weeks, uh, we've been in a series looking at the core statements in the Apostles' Creed, which is one of the oldest and most widely accepted statements of faith in the Christian church. And today is the penultimate, the next to the last week in this series. Next Sunday, Pastor Evan will bring the series in for a landing, and he'll uh, uh, then move on on November 26th into a short series leading up to Christmas, which looks at some of the women ancestors of Jesus. The series is called The Mothers of Jesus. But today, as we get close to ending the series on the Apostles' Creed, we're going to look at one very brief statement in the Creed, which says that I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And Paul's words to us today from the letter of Ephesians, which Amanda just read, call us to forgive one another. And yet, he says that we can only do that to the extent that we ourselves are forgiven by God. And so today, we'll look at what it means to experience forgiveness and what it means to be forgiving, what it means to experience forgiveness and what it means to be forgiving. So my first and only experience as a movie director, came 15 years. So when a sermon starts that way, you, you have pretty low expectations for how it's going to continue. But my first and only experience as a movie director came 15 years ago. At that time, I was working for a ministry called Harvest USA. And I was creating a video-based product to train people in churches to help other Christians who were struggling with different types of sexual brokenness. And since we were working on a shoestring budget, I was shooting this video with a small group of drama students from a local college, none of whom were Christians. So it was very interesting. But they were playing Christians in the video. And one of the scenes portrayed a young Christian man who was struggling with, with uh, pornography and was ashamed and was concerned that God could never forgive him. And so he asked me the question that so many other great directors throughout cinematic history have been asked over the years, what's my motivation? What, what's my motivation to seek forgiveness? And actually, it was a pretty profound question because uh, I, I think we all struggle with that. What does it mean to be forgiven? These are questions that are core to the Christian faith. In fact, they are central questions for all believers in both the Old and the New Testaments. And Lauren, if you would 
bring up that, that little chart. So the, the, the questions of why do I need forgiveness, how can I be forgiven by God, how can my relationships with God and my fellow human beings be healed, those are questions that everyone throughout redemptive history have struggled with. And God has orchestrated all of redemptive history to point to the central uh, event in redemptive history, which is Jesus' death on the cross. So the diagram shows that all of the Old Testament anticipates the cross, and all of the New Testament looks back on the cross and, and says, this is the source of my faith. This is the source of my desire to draw nearer to the Lord because I know that something happened on the cross that changed history. Something happened on the cross that radically changed my standing with God, my relationship with Him, and my relationship with other believers. And so, what does it mean to experience forgiveness? Well, we got some perspective from the very brief passage that we looked at today. Paul tells us in chapter 4, verse 32 of Ephesians, that God forgave us in Christ, and in 5.2, that Christ gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, the entirety of our forgiveness comes in Christ and through Christ, just like that diagram that we looked at shows. Everything that we are today, every, every desire that we have, every way in which we live out our lives as, as, as people who believe in Jesus and, and try to follow Him and the strength that He provides, we look back to that central point of forgiveness. It all happens in Christ. So, what, but what does it mean to be forgiven in Christ? There's a parable that Jesus told back in Matthew 18. Maybe you uh, remember it. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in that parable, Jesus said that a king once had a servant who amassed an incredible debt against him. Ten, I think it was 10,000 talents. Uh, that the servant owed the king. And this is just an incredible amount of money that the servant had no hope of ever paying back. And so the king, realizing the situation, realizing that the servant could never make good on this debt, couldn't even begin to pay back the smallest percentage of it, he had mercy on him, and he forgave him the debt. He wiped it off the books. And that's the position that we all find ourselves in today. We're, we're all in the position of having sinned against God. And while we don't owe God money, like the servant in the parable, our sin creates a real debt that we owe to God. Do you know what that debt is? That debt is our own lives. God warns us throughout Scripture that the consequence of sin is what? It's death. He warned Adam, our first ancestor in Genesis 1.17, that if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely what? Die. And throughout all of the various covenants that God made with his people Israel over the years, he warned them that breaking those covenants would result in death. And then James, the New Testament author, tells us in James 1.15 that sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
And so that's, that's the debt that we owe. We owe our own lives. That's the only way that we can satisfy that debt. But that was never God's plan for us. It was never his plan for his people that we would die. His plan has always been to show us his love and mercy, things that we don't deserve and could never merit by our own good works. As the writer of Psalm 78 tells us, God, being compassionate, atoned for our iniquity or sin himself. And and my friends, I, I want us to just sit with that statement In in a sense, it's not a novel statement because it is repeated over and over in many ways throughout all of Scripture in both the Old and the New Testaments, but it is is radical. That, That is the pivot point of history that God chose to atone for the sin of His people Himself. How did He do that? We did that by sending his son Jesus in human flesh to live a sinless life and then to die a vicarious death as a sacrifice for his sinful people. It might be tempting to think that God spent generation after generation of human history trying to teach his people how to live according to his rules, and only after millennia of failures, he finally threw up his hands and said, this just isn't working. These people are not getting it. I've tried everything else to get these people to change. It hasn't worked, and so I'm going to have to send my son as a last resort. That's just not the way that it worked. Lauren, if you would put that cross chart up again. God orchestrated all of redemptive history to show us that there is nothing that we can do in our own strength to be good enough, to be obedient enough to satisfy His law. All of the Old Testament sacrifice uh, system that God established to atone for sin, the, the sacrifice of animals in the tabernacle and then in the temple, the, the shedding of blood for sin, that was never adequate to atone for our sin. It all pointed toward something greater that was coming. There there are records in Scripture of uh, the Day of Atonement when people would go to the temple or to the tabernacle to sacrifice lambs, to sacrifice uh, uh, other animals that they were bringing uh, to shed the animal's blood for their own sin guilt. And and the Bible says that the blood would flow from the altar like a river. That's how much blood was being spilled to atone for the, the sins of God's people, and yet that blood was insufficient. There's no way the blood of an animal could pay for the sin of a human being. It was a sign. It was pointing towards something else. God and God alone is the only one capable of saving his people from the intractable, intractable sorry, problem that they created for themselves. So there are many illustrations to describe how God decided to show us this kind of grace and mercy, but if you'll indulge me for a moment, let me 
share with you an extended illustration that I think captures it well. So, for the, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I've been uh, a believer for about 50 years. And um, for the first 30 years or so of my life, my faith was pretty stagnant. I, I was in a church that really didn't proclaim the gospel, that didn't disciple me, that, that didn't really help me learn how to, how to live out the forgiveness that I had received through the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so, by God's grace, I began going to uh, a church down in Center City called 10th Presbyterian Church, and the, the minister at that time was named James Boyce. And this was an illustration he used in a sermon about 25 years ago. And this, this would be him speaking in his words. Go back before Genesis 3. Genesis 3, by the way, is where uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin, and, and sin entered the world. Go back even before Genesis 1, which is where God created everything. So, so go back essentially to pre-biblical times before anything existed. The only things, uh, the only beings that did exist were the Trinity, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as the Trinity was contemplating creation and the creation of mankind in particular, the members of the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, discussed how to demonstrate the extent of their love to the image bearers that they were about to bring into existence. They decided that showing faithful, unmerited love to mankind was the way to do it. God would give mankind the, the potential to disobey His law, to sin. And He knew that they would choose to do that. They would choose to serve themselves rather than to serve Him. Because of their rebellion, they would need a redeemer, someone to serve as a suitably atoning sacrifice for their sin, because there was no way that an unjust and wantonly sinful people could be merely forgiven by an infinitely just and holy God. In other words, there's no way God could just say, what you do doesn't matter. There, there has to be a payment for sin. There has to be atonement. Sin required a sacrifice to atone for it, and that sacrifice needed to either be the life of the sinner or the life of a substitute. So who would that redeemer be? Who would that substitute be? The father asked the son, the eternal son, to lay down his life for his people. But doing that would mean that the Son would be cut off from the perfect union, the perfect love, the, uh, the, the, the perfect uh, fellowship that He had experienced with the Father and the Holy Spirit for the equivalent of infinity. His suffering would be limitless because the fullness of God's wrath on sin would be poured out on Him. He would bear in His body the agony of the punishment that every one of his people would deserve. Knowing that, the son said, I will go. I love them and I will not let them perish for their sin. They'll be reconciled to us through me and they'll be with us for all eternity. 
And so in the fullness of time, the second person of the Godhead was made flesh. He was born a baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He grew into manhood, living in complete obedience to the Father's will and law all the while. And though the Son was man, he was fully man, he didn't sin. He lived in perfect obedience on earth, perfectly submitting to his Father's will, even as he had done in heaven from eternity past. There's not one crime, not one sin, not one deed done with mixed motivation for which he was ever guilty. He was, and he is, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, whose blood was shed as an atoning sacrifice on the cross for all who claim his name. And only the perfect spotless Lamb of God could be the suitable sacrifice for you and for me and all those who profess His name throughout history. And He did all of this because He loves us and because He determined from before the foundations of the world that you and I would never be separated from Him or from His love. So, what does it mean to experience forgiveness? Well, here are four things. One is that you recognize that you've broken God's law in seemingly countless ways. We we not only sin outwardly, but we sin inwardly. We, we, We do things in our hearts and minds that no one but us and God knows. And then there are things that we do because we're sinful people with sin natures that we're probably even unaware of, where we break God's law. Two, we we understand that we deserve punishment, and that punishment is, is death and being separated from God and from His love forever. And three is that we trust in faith that Jesus, God's own eternal Son, put Himself in our place and took our punishment on Himself on the cross. And then as a result of Jesus' death in our place on the cross, our sins are forgiven. And God now welcomes us into eternal fellowship with Him. Our forgiveness in Christ is something that is entirely undeserved, unmerited, something that is... Uh, a, a gift. The theological term for it is grace. And we, we talk about grace all the time. We, we find ways to incorporate it into preaching and teaching and prayers. But the reality is that this grace is something that we are going to spend all of eternity trying to figure out. That's how great it is. Earlier on in the book of Ephesians, when Paul was talking about what this grace is like to experience, he said that there's virtually no way that you can understand it, except in little ways. And so he prays this prayer for the people that are hearing his letter read. Uh, let me just read it for you. It's, it's not on a slide, uh, but let me just read it from, for you, rather. It's from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And just as you, as you listen to this prayer, make it your own, and just f- listen to 
the, the virtual impossibility of understanding what, what this grace is all about. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations." forever and ever. Amen. Did you hear the words that Paul used? The, this, this is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that we can only even begin to comprehend how great this grace is, how great the, the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of it, as the, the fullness of the power of God is working in us through the Spirit. It's like we're, we're peeking through a keyhole into this beautiful room, and, and we're able to just behold tiny bits of its glory. But the reason I share that with you, my friends, is because to experience forgiveness is to realize that Union with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, isn't just a future promise. It's a present reality. The reason that Paul is praying that the people who are listening to his letter would know how much God loves them is because that love exists for them now. The new relationship that they have with God through the Son exists now. And that new relationship is meant to, to, to transform us, to utterly make us new people. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 5 about us being part of the new creation. It's not, you know, it's not some uh, Hallmark Channel vision of what heaven's going to be like. Uh, when we die, we're going to walk around in white robes with wings and play harps. The, the eternal life for those who, who believe in Jesus, has already begun. It will never end. You will never cease to exist if you are someone who trusts in Jesus as your Savior. And the love and the peace and the communion that you have with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit isn't something that you will have in heaven any more than you have it now. The, 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 the time that we spend on this earth as God's image bearers redeemed by the blood of Christ is meant to fit us for an eternity with the Trinity. It's, it's meant to conform us to the in, image of Christ so that we grow increasingly in our knowledge of God and our experience of Him. It's meant that we would 
let go of the shame and the fear that we hold on to because of our sin, and that we would trust that we really are beloved children, like Paul talks about in Ephesians 5.2. Brothers and sisters, this is reality for us today. And I'll tell you what, part of experiencing forgiveness is that we would give in to God's process of radically transforming us. Paul tells us in Romans 2.4 that God's kindness toward us is meant to lead to our repentance, to our changed hearts, to our changed behavior, to our changed thoughts. We don't, we don't do good things, we don't obey because we're trying to earn God's favor. We obey, we repent because we're living out of who we really are today, beloved children of God. So the second point, and this will be shorter, what it means to be forgiving. You can't truly be a forgiving person without the experience of having been forgiven yourself. The American Psychological Association defines forgiveness about this. It, it says that forgiveness involves willfully putting aside feelings of resentment towards someone who has committed a wrong, been unfair or hurtful, or otherwise harmed you in some way. It involves a voluntary uh, transformation of your feelings, your attitudes and behaviors, so that you're no longer dominated by resentment and can express compassion, generosity, or the like toward the person who wronged you. For what it's worth, that's great advice. But I know I can't do that. And I'm pretty sure that you can't either. We, we can't accomplish that on our own. We can't just decide to no longer be angry towards someone who owes us a debt. Because that debt has to be paid. Someone who has wronged us we, we need them to apologize. We need them to repent. There's no way in my own strength that I can forgive someone who has maligned me, someone who has unfairly criticized me, or maybe even fairly criticized me, someone who has denied me what I think I deserve. The only way that I can do that is as I reflect the forgiveness that I have in Christ Jesus into their lives. The only way that I can do that is as I share with them the grace that I myself have received. Our passage today has three examples of what it looks like to forgive. In verse I'm sorry, in chapter 4, verse 32, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, referring back to our status as forgiven people, be imitators of God as beloved children. And what he says is the only reason that we're beloved children rather than objects of wrath is because Jesus gave up his rightful place as a beloved child in order for us to be adopted by God as dearly loved children. 
And then in chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, And walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The way in which we walk in love is to reflect what Christ did for us, to choose to love us first and then to give himself up for us. Paul's very careful in each of these three verses to link his calls to action, for us to be kind to one another, forgiving one another, to be imitators of God, and to walk in love. He he connects all of them to the finished reality of what Jesus Christ has already done for us. In, In 432, we're called to be kind to one another and to forgive one another because God in Christ has already forgiven us. Do you see the connection there? In chapter 5, verse 1, we're called to be imitators of God because we've already been made beloved children through the work of Christ on our behalf. In chapter 5, verse 2, we're called to walk in love because Christ has already loved us and given himself up for us. Paul's not asking us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and our own strength and to do what's right because that's what God requires. Rather, He invites us to allow the love and grace of God to wash over us time and time again, softening our hearts and our consciences, and to make decisions about how to live in the here and now based on the gospel realities of already being perfectly loved and made a completely righteous, beloved child of God through the work of Jesus Christ. He says, Live according to who you already are in Christ Jesus. He says, forgive one another because you are children of forgiveness. He says, love one another because your lives are defined by the limitless love of God the Father for you. And so as we wrap up, let me talk briefly about how to do this. As I said a moment ago, If you try to live this out on your own, it's not going to work. But if you consciously and deliberately ask the Lord to convince you of the truth about who you are and to give you the grace to live that way, you'll find that a life of forgiveness flows more and more naturally from you. And so here are three R's to help you in that process. The first is, remember what God says about His goodness and mercy toward you from His Word. And you can do that by reading His Word regularly, maybe even daily. Start out with little chunks. Remind yourself in God's own words of what He says about you and who you are. The second R is remind yourself daily of your status as a beloved son or daughter of God. And you can do this through praying that God would help you to keep your true identity front and center in your life. My friends, one of the the most powerful ways that we can engage in spiritual warfare daily is, is to just pray throughout the day. One of the things I enjoy doing is praying in the morning before I really begin interacting with other people because I know that if I don't do that in the strength of God, I'm going to be a pretty poor witness and a pretty miserable person to be around. And so one of the things that I do is I pray that the reality of who I am in Christ would fill me, would change me, and that the Lord would use me to be a witness 
to His love and mercy uh, to others. And the third R is rest in the fact that there's nothing that could ever stop God from loving you. And you can do this through making conscious decisions based on faith to not take revenge against anyone else because nothing they could ever do to you could remove you from God's love. There's nothing, there's no word that they could say, there's no attitude they could hold, there is no um, deed that they could ever do that would make you any less loved by God than you are. You are firmly rooted and grounded in love because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And like virtually every other aspect of the Christian life, these things are best done in the context of community with other believers. Um, we, We are certainly called to do these things on our own, but how much more effective they are when we ask the people who know us and love us in the church to remind us of God's love and to remind us of who we are in in Christ and to pray for us on a daily basis. We need one another in order to strengthen our faith and to stand firm in the face of trials and challenges. One final thing. I, I would encourage all of us as we remember the love of Christ on our behalf. Give thanks for that. Give, Give thanks to the Lord for the fact that He knew you from before the foundations of the world and chose you to be part of His covenant people. Look around. This, This is a tiny, tiny microcosm of His covenant people. But there are Millions, perhaps even billions of other Christians gathering together today to celebrate the same faith. You have been saved into a family. You have been saved into a fellowship that is going to grow in love and in power. And there's nothing that can stop that because God himself has determined that this is going to happen. Let's pray.